Hello and welcome to our time around scripture today. I'm very glad you're with us. Would you grab a Bible please and turn to John chapter 11. It's probably, oh, I don't know, seven eighths or so through the Bible. Maybe you're going to look on your smartphone or your tablet. Or if you're joining us online, obviously there's a tab there on the computer that you could find. John chapter 11 is where we are going to read. And uh, can I just say, I'm very glad that you're with us today. That uh, here it is, the first weekend that we've been back after doing this for, in my opinion, way too long already, but I guess we're up for, for a while yet. But it's great to have you here. And uh, we are gathering this weekend in literally hundreds of sites, hundreds of homes. And for the first time in many months, we have four sites here in the building on North MacArthur Road. So I'm very glad to be joining with you as we look at scripture today. If I've not met you, my name is Wayne. I'm part of the pastoral team. And let's spend some time together today looking at John chapter 11. To start off, uh, maybe you are aware of this, that I've been in pastoral ministry for a lot of years now, since July of 1985. So that makes it 35 years, according to my math, though that may be questionable as well. But in that period of time, it's been my honor to lead hundreds of families through a grief process of dealing with the death of the loved person within their family. That process usually includes a funeral or a memorial service. And I'd say that for the most part, probably 99% of those settings, I always start the funerals or the memorial service in the same way. I do that for the sake of the congregation gathered there that day. Because in the midst of grief, I want them to hear something familiar so that people can say, well, I sat in this space or I've heard this fellow do this before. And last time he did it, he read these particular passages of scripture. I, it's something familiar. And last time I made my way through the grief process and I survived that despairing moment. And I, just because something's familiar, I'm going to survive this despairing moment as well. And so um, I'm going to read those passages of scripture to you. And I'm actually using what I affectionately call my funeral Bible. I've had this since 1985. And it's, I only use it for funerals. You know why? Because it's pretty beat up. The reason that it's beat up is because you do funerals and you do grave sites hundreds of times like I have. You're in the snow, you're in the blazing heat of the summer, you're in the cold rains in the fall. It's got wet over and over, sometimes from what comes out of the sky, sometimes what comes off my hand. But it, it just falls open to the right passages of scripture. Like, and it, it's just marked for me. For example, uh, we, I have in Matthew uh, and in John places where it just is right there. And so one of the things I do is that I regularly start a worship service that's called a funeral or a memorial service with this passage of scripture. I would normally say it this way. Hello to each of you here today. Welcome here in the name of Jesus Christ. And I'd say that whether we're in this room or perhaps at a gravesite or at a funeral chapel. And then I'd say, uh, my name is Wayne Kent. It's my privilege to be on the pastoral staff at First Christian Church here in Decatur. And it's my honor to lead us through this event today. And as we begin, I'd invite you to hear the word of the Lord. Scripture says this, and I read this scripture. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. And Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. 
and whoever lives and believes in me will never die. That last statement from John chapter 11 about the resurrection, whoever believes in him will never die. Uh, That's the focal point of the story that we're going to review and look at from the book of John today. We're carrying on our review of this book. Uh, It's the last of the four biographies of Jesus in the scriptures. And um, John is telling the story of Jesus' life and his ministry. And we've been focusing on the reason that he says, this is why I've written all the details down. It's not just so that I could have a record. But he says this in chapter 20. He says, this story is written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing you may have life in his name. I want you to believe. He says, I'm telling you this story so that you'll believe and you'll have life in his name. And that's the understanding that applies to John chapter 11. If you'll read with me, please, beginning in verse 1. Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Now, I, I, I want to stop before we get too far and uh, give you some notes that Bethany, where the story is going to take place, is a... Um, a suburb, we can put it that way, of ancient Jerusalem. It's about two to three miles out of the city center. And uh, Jesus is nowhere near them. If you look at the end of chapter 10, he's quite some distance away. He's on the other side. He's on the east side of the Jordan River. Jerusalem's on the west side of the Jordan River. And scholars have placed him anywhere from 20 to, oh, maybe 100 miles away. I think the 100 miles seems a little bit too far, given that he's going to walk there very quickly over a matter of a couple days. But 20 miles seems reasonable. And so there's this situation in Bethany, where you've got a fellow who is sick, his name is Lazarus. This Mary, his brother Lazarus, now lay sick. He was the same, she was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped her, his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. A family of three siblings, two women, two sisters, one brother, and I'll, I'll let the cat out of the bag. The brother is about to die. It's, it's going to be a pretty rough start to the story. When Jesus heard this, we read in verse 4, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. Now, I would let the cat out of the bag that he does die, so what happens? Okay, This sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory, so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was for two more days. You'd think, man, if he's got healing power, wouldn't he get on the stick and make it happen? Get there quickly? Then, two days later, he says to his disciples, let's go back to Judea. Judea is, if you will, the state around the city of Jerusalem. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you're going back there? Now, there's something to note here. Jesus is going to go to Bethany. We're going to see that in just a minute. But Bethany's proximity to Jerusalem is quite problematic for this band of traveling, itinerant religious people, Jesus and his disciples. See, the leaders of the city of Jerusalem, they were fully aware of Jesus' ministry. And if you look back in chapter 10, verse 31, and moving on from there, you'll see that the religious leaders of Jerusalem, the religious folk didn't really like this man. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 10, they actually are trying to stone him for blasphemy. And you can imagine the disciples saying, hey, 
We don't really want to go there, Jesus. Last time we were there, we got out literally by the skin of our teeth. This idea that Jesus going places and it being problematic for the leaders of the Jewish faith at the time, that wasn't new. If you go back to John chapter 7, we see Jesus saying, you know, I'm going to stay away from Jerusalem for a little while because my life is in danger. We read John 7 verse 1, that Jesus went around in Galilee. Now, Galilee is the area of Israel that's up in the north. Jerusalem and Judea are down in the south. He said, the scriptures say he went around in Galilee, staying away purposely from Judea, that's Jerusalem, because the Jewish leaders there were waiting to take his life. So in John chapter 7, he's saying, we're going to stay away from Jerusalem for a while. And yet here we get to, to uh, John 11, and it's just a few months later, and Jesus is planning to walk back into Bethany. He's willing to step into danger. He's willing to take on some difficult settings, the hard ministry, the dangerous stuff. You know, friends, I think um, if we were going to put this in the language of our congregation and the language that we use in ministry around here, we'd say that Jesus is running toward the mess. I know we love that attitude here. We as a congregation, we choose to step into difficult and messy situations, all for the sake of Jesus' ministry and Jesus' name. But of course, I'm very mindful of this. In Jesus' story here in John 11, and in our congregation's ministry, running toward the mess is, I've discovered, usually awkward. Sometimes it's uncharted territory. It's difficult. And... Frankly, sometimes when we run toward the mess, the mess gets all over us. I've seen that happen more often than I'd prefer. And I've been thinking about that of late. That if we want a squeaky clean congregation without awkward moments, then we can't get involved in the messy aspects of the lives of people in need. We'd need a different approach to ministry than what we have now. We would need, if you will, an antiseptic ministry approach. I've got to say, friends, that's antithetical to the gospel. It's contrary to a Jesus-styled ministry. We love the slogan, running toward the mess. But if we love it, then we must accept the mess will get on us at times. Because this is what I've learned. A Jesus-styled ministry, it's messy, it's awkward, and it's often difficult. And sometimes... The mess gets spread all over everybody. But Jesus steps in. And to make a long story short, as he arrives, Martha, one of the sisters, goes out to the edge of town to greet him, and she says, Jesus, you came too late. Lazarus, he's already dead. If you'd come earlier with all the power that you have from God, you could have healed him. But it's too late now. But Jesus has a really cool idea in mind. If you go back to verse 4, he has this understanding of the event when he says, this sickness will not end in death. Mm -mm. He says, no, this sickness is for God's glory. Or look at verse 25, that passage of scripture that I read at funerals. Jesus says to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live, and even though they die... Whoever lives by believing in me will never die. See, the direct outcome, the direct result of Jesus coming, 
of his ministry, of his life and death, is a powerful result in our lives and in the life of all history. Michael Card puts it this way, that this event is a setup. It's all set up for God's glory. And Card says that sickness and disease and even death have lost their power. They have lost their sting in light of Jesus coming to the world. In Jesus, death has simply become a sleep from which he will someday awaken us. And that's exactly what happened if you read with me in beginning in verse 38. Jesus, once more deeply moved, came to the tomb. And John describes what the tomb looks like. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said, but then Martha, the sister, is a little bit, she's like, uh, I don't know about this. She says, uh, but Lord, by this time, there's a bad odor. He's decomposing. He's been in there for four days. And Jesus said, didn't I tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus looks up to heaven. And he says, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. You know what's happened, friend? You know what's taken place here? A dead man has come back to life. Now, I'm aware that um, there are moments when we sort of view death as a friend. Someone has suffered and struggled and been in pain and agony maybe for ages. And we hold a hand and we stand around a bedside and we wait for a last breath. And dare I say, at times we go, a sigh of relief. We say, there's no more pain. I get it. But death, no matter how quiet or how relieving it is, death, if you will, was never God's original plan. Scripture states that death was introduced into humanity's story through sin. Before, If this is the mark of sin, before sin... We weren't supposed to die. Now, I don't know how that was going to work. I don't know how nature was going to work if people didn't die and if nature didn't die. I mean, you know how nature works, at least on our side of the sinful, of sin's introduction into the cosmos. We know that, for example, a tree goes tall and proud and something happens, it gets struck by lightning or it just ages out and that trunk and all its branches come down to the ground and it begins to rot, and the fallen trunk provides um, shelter for animals. As it rots, it provides sustenance for bugs and critters, and the trunk, it decomposes, and as it decomposes, it becomes soil, and it provides food for a new seed of the next tree to grow, tall and strong, we call it the circle of life. But I don't know what that was supposed to, how that was supposed to be before sin was introduced into the cosmos. I don't know that perhaps we were simply as people, as humans, maybe all of nature was going to do that, but humans were simply going to move into God's presence for eternity. I hope to ask him one day for a full explanation of how that 
was going to work. But I know on this side of sin's introduction into, humans, into humanity's story, I know that at present, all of us have a date to die. But I want you to remember, at this point in our story, in John chapter 11, this young man, we assume he's fairly young, the way the story's written, he's, he rises again. But a few years later, you know what happened? A point came along where he died again. I mean, he might have been 95 and, so to speak, them all standing around the bedside with their holding hands and say, it's time, Lazarus. Maybe. But humanity's enemy, death, got him again. Do you want to know how God views Lazarus' death and your death? It's in the story, but you have to look for it. See, when Jesus arrived, arrived at Bethany, remember I said that Martha, one of the sisters, came out to meet him? Well, a few moments later after Martha says, hey, Jesus, if you'd just shown up earlier, Lazarus would still be alive. A few moments later, Mary comes out, and she basically says the same thing. It's in verse 32. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was, so this is before, Je before Lazarus has been raised from the dead by Jesus. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. She's repeating Martha's statement. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, they have professional mourners. He was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And where have you laid him? He asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And with that, Jesus wept. There's something there in the text that tells us about how God views death, but it's just not very plain in the English text. In verse 33, it says, Jesus was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. And we just, okay, he's, he's grieving. We lose the impact of that in English. This business of deeply moved and troubled. It centers around a Greek word that would be used to describe how a horse would snort. You know, when a horse shakes its head and you get this strange noise. The Greek word is embryneomai. We translate it into English as deeply troubled and moved. But think about that horse snorting, shaking its head. The original understanding of that word is like the hair on the back of your neck is standing up and it makes you shudder. You've had that moment, right? And think about what you've got. You've got Jesus shuddering at the death of Lazarus. Think about what's being stated there, reading between the lines, reading between the English and understanding the Greek. You've got the Son of God fully vested in heaven's authority. You've got the Son of God fully capable of calling down a mighty army of every angel in the cosmos. You've got the Son of God named as the creator of the cosmos. All of that responding to death with a, ooh, can't stand that. The hair on the back of your neck standing up. What's the scripture telling us? Your death, your parents' death, your spouse's death, your child's death. It's never part of God's plan. And you have the Son of God, you have, if you will, all of heaven, shudders 
shudders at what Satan has developed as what he thinks is his ultimate weapon. And heaven shudders at your death. But friends, that's really good news. Lazarus' resurrection, not just this one here in John 11, but his second resurrection that's still yet to come, the resurrection of all Christian believers who have died in Christ, we all mirror the greatest resurrection of all. The greatest move against that divine shudder. If, you all, if heaven does this, here's the move against that shudder. Here's the move against Satan's ultimate weapon. Jesus' death on the cross and his victory of the grave is a foretaste of God's plan for you. The shudders of heaven are overcome by our resurrection as demonstrated in Jesus' resurrection. See, here's what John 11 shows us. It shows us that by traveling to Bethany, by stepping into a dangerous and messy setting, your setting, your mess, Jesus is intentionally engaged in that. You're not alone. It also shows that while you and I may die unless Jesus, we will die unless Jesus comes back, but here's the point. Your upcoming death causes heaven to shudder and plans have already been put in place for your resurrection. What are those plans? Well, friends, they are already drawn. They're sketched on heaven's big blueprint table. They're already completed. And here's the completion of those plans that occurred some 2,000 years ago that Jesus died and rose again. And the next resurrection on the calendar, yours and mine, and all those who have died in Christ Jesus. And so what's our response to this story then? Mary shows us. We read in verse 32. We read a minute ago. That when Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him. She fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And Okay, we get that. But there's an interesting posture that she takes. And gives us an example a model of the best response to the Son of God. Our best response to Jesus, the one who conquered not only Lazarus' first death, but his second death along with the death of all Christian believers. We fall at Jesus' feet. After all, remember, John wrote this book so that we'd believe. Remember he said, he wrote all that Jesus did so that people would believe that Jesus is the Son of God and in, and in doing so have life. He wrote it so that we'd believe, and the best response is full surrender and bowing to Jesus Christ in full belief. We acknowledge he won the battle over death, not just for everybody else, but for you and for me. In fact, each week during this John series, we've been giving you a livid approach for the coming week. And here it is for this week. I want you to write this down. I want you to memorize it. Figure out a way to use this and to kind of let this sink into your spirit all week long. Here's a statement. Learn this statement. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in him will live. And if that's what you believe... Then in all of life this week, do what Mary did. Take a knee before Jesus Christ. Bow and surrender to him by 
living and caring and ministering in the mess, knowing that you might get some mess on you, yeah, but knowing that heaven shudders at the thought of your death and rejoices at the plan already in place for your resurrection. Let's pray together. Father, for everybody here today, for those in the building, for those um, participating in worship online, literally, literally hundreds of settings, I pray that we would learn again of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, how much power that has in our lives, that we are not, Lord, we are not assigned to suffer death and for that to be it. No. Jesus came so that we would have life and we declare that he is the resurrection and the life. And as we believe that, we live. Lord, I pray for anyone joining us today who has not yet come to a place where, I guess like Mary, has, they, they, they need to come to a place where they will bow before him. Father, enable us all to do that in a way that is right, in a way that is full of integrity, in a way that speaks that we want the power, the resurrection power of Jesus Christ in our lives now. And we will declare, God, that we believe that Jesus is the Son of God and we rely on him for our resurrection on the other side of what sometimes is a lot of mess. I thank you for your great work in all of us today. In Christ's name, amen. God bless you today, friends.